0: Granger for the ones who get it done. We're going to talk about beer, we're going to talk about tea, and we're going to talk about Veeps. We had some good questions on the Facebook site and at uh, MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPolitics.com, so I wanted to uh, tackle some of them. Bill Preem writes on the Facebook site, Bruce, given that the podcast takes present situations and analyzes them in a historical context, I would like to suggest a topic of the recent tea-bagging demonstrations that took place on tax day. I think most of us get the original root cause being the Boston Tea Party, but I would like to know more about popular unrest or civil disobedience. For example, Shays' Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion, labor demonstrations in the Progressive Era, a Vietnam War protest, civil rights movement. I know this is a lot to cover, and maybe you... Or choose to cover in a different way. I just thought I would throw it out there. Well, thanks, Bill. And uh, yeah, I won't tackle this whole subject of all unrest. Certainly, Shays' Rebellion is remembered, if for nothing else, uh, as an event that propelled uh, many in the nation to look to some kind of a federal constitution. The federal uh, group of former Revolutionary War soldiers and farmers in western Massachusetts who were rebelling under Captain uh, Daniel Shays. That came close to overthrowing the power of the state of Massachusetts at an early time. The Whiskey Rebellion in west of Pennsylvania, which did not come close to overthrowing the government, it was easily crushed, but it did establish the federal government's power when Washington got a militia together and went out there and defeated the rebels. The Boston Tea Party, of course, was started over the Tea Act of 1773, which placed a tax on British tea, and it also brought British tea into the colonies that was much cheaper than the tea that was being produced here. And so, infuriated, a group of Bostonians went to the ships in the harbor and dumped the tea, and that's an oversimplification of what happened Sam Adams promoted the event, publicized the event, and he was a prominent figure in the group that was behind this Tea Party. Now, the colonies were in a sense without representation. The Declaratory Act that Parliament had passed declared that it was the power in all cases whatsoever. Yet the colonies did not send any representatives to Parliament. They did have sympathetic members in England, but They didn't send any representatives that had voting rights directly to parliament. The colonial legislatures could be overridden at any moment by parliament. So this is where I have a slight difficulty with any comparison of any kind of protest you have now, including these tea parties, which are being heavily promoted by, I would say, Republican or conservative uh, media outlets, is that there had been an election conducted, we have a new president, Congress has been elected of the same party and they're implementing the type of things that one would expect given the election that we had and the various promises uh, made. Uh, Incidentally, I also think they're implementing uh, some policies that are not too different from at least the tail end of the administration before, which was a Republican president. And so what we have in the Tea Parties is kind of one party or one opposition group protesting what's going on, but it's not the same as protesting a true tyranny where there was no voice, no vote, no representation. Sam Adams, who had participated in the uh, Boston Tea Party, or at least in publicizing the event, he wasn't actually throwing tea out of the ship, but later would oppose Shays' rebellion and would demand that uh, Shays and the other uh, rebels be tried and hung. And the reason is is that he felt that a rebellion against tyranny was fine, but a rebellion against democracy could not be tolerated. That was revolting against the popularly elected government. The only thing I'd add here is that organizing is very important in politics, and so from a strategic point of view, these tea parties or anything that gets a base that has uh, some reason for gloom, uh, it was a pretty bad election, for Republicans last time around, anything that uh, gives people an organizing point is probably going to be helpful for your party, especially as you get into 2010. On the Facebook site, Dan Michener writes, I was having an interesting discussion with a friend at a local favorite watering hole. We were thinking about the history of our country and if there were good antidotes about American history in pubs. How much behind-the-scenes politics has been discussed, issues hashed out, etc., after the workday was done in the halls of government, and the discussion carried over to a debate over a couple of ales in local pubs in Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Boston, etc.? I remember reading about the muggy hot weather in the summer of 1776. Since there was no air conditioning back then, the debates must have been extremely uncomfortable in Constitution Hall. How much of those debates about the formation of our country carried on over a couple of brews at the local tavern? Are there any other antidotes out there about political decisions or two political rivals meeting to discuss an issue at a local tavern? Curious and now a little thirsty, so writes Dan. And agreeing with him is Greg Francis of Kentucky. Uh, who wrote, uh, I'm thinking of a podcast here, too. I think you could trace it all the way back to William and Mary in Jamestown. If I recollect, Phi Beta Kappa started as a drinking society and has involved some significant historical figures. And uh, you are both right. And, uh, yes, absolutely, uh, beer and American politics uh, go together. Beer and colonial life uh, go together. Some of this should not be surprising. Uh, The early Americans were, of course, Englishmen, and we know that uh, it's not a new thing that Englishmen uh, have a fondness for beer. When the Englishmen came over and founded what are now the uh, United States of America, they took their brewing skills with them. Um, There were many breweries in the colonies, both official and unofficial. Interestingly enough, Pubs, or a better word to use, would be taverns, played an important role in American politics, and there's three pubs in particular that I'd like to talk about. Um, but the pubs uh, or taverns and played more than just a role after the fact, although uh, or after the meetings were were finished, and and folks went in there to get a, an ale. Uh, but actually in some cases were where the meetings were conducted. So I'll talk about that uh, in a little bit. Uh, You can touch on so many points with this. There can be no doubt that colonials drank, uh, and probably more than we do today, definitely more than we do today. Although they didn't know the reason why, boiling water was safer than the type of water you could get. Uh, They drank rum, they drank hard liquor, whiskey, cider, because apple trees were so plentiful in the colonies, they drank hard cider and apple jack. Uh, imports, at least in the beginning, were scarce in America. And so it was rare that beer would be imported. This they made their own, from local wheat and, where they could get them, local hops. Where hops weren't available, they used some strange things. Uh, dandelions, uh Carrots sometimes were put into the the beer. Very often cooked molasses was used to kind of give that a bitter taste to the beer. Beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy, Ben Franklin told his readers in his Poor Richard's Almanac. And although that publication was sometimes whimsical in nature, Franklin knew beer well. As an apprentice, printer... He often had to get beer during the day several times for the older journeyman printers. George Washington was a fan of a dark beer that uh, you might know if you know beer well, Porter Beer. Sam Adams, uh, to pay the bills of his political newspapers and activities, worked at the family brewery. Patrick Henry, who gave the famous speech of give me liberty or give me death, the Virginia patriot, was a tavern keeper. Before he became a lawyer and a great speechmaker, taverns were the center of social life in the colonies really since the 1600s. Indeed, the British had encouraged taverns to be developed in the colonies. Once built, a tavern was a bar, but it was more than that. It was a rest stop in that town or village. It was often a hotel, very commonly a meeting place, sometimes A marketplace, a place to do business transactions rather than going to one's home or another's home. A restaurant certainly, even a courthouse at times, and in some cases a tavern could be used as a church. So a word of caution if we are listening to this and thinking that, hey, when I go to my sports bar and watch a baseball game and guzzle down beer and uh, buffalo wings or what have you. I'm doing the same thing that Ben Franklin and all those guys did. But maybe these taverns were a little bit more than your average pub. They did have a bar area, certainly. They were also uh, very restaurants and they could be used for purposes. But many times when meetings were conducted, beer would be served. The British, in order to encourage Colonial militias, you've got to remember, even though these militia men would end up fighting the British, at first, in the British colonies, it was the civil defense system, and it was the British defense system. The British didn't want to send a lot of soldiers over to the colonies to protect against the French and the hostile Indian tribes around America, so they wanted to encourage militia units. One great way to get a militia out is to have a meeting and have drill day at the taverns and serve beer help to get a crowd. It is a little surprise then uh, when I tell you that taverns played an important role in American politics and there are three in particular and the good news is is that all three of them can still be enjoyed today sort of. The first uh, is the city tavern in the young city at the time of Philadelphia. It was built in 1773 by a group of elite Philadelphians For the convenience and the credit of the city. At that time, city elders felt in order to grow, the city needed a nice first-class tavern. It had three floors, had a dining room, several club rooms. Two of the club rooms could be combined to make a large public assembly spot. It also had a bar and a coffee room. So it was a little bit like a bar and a Starbucks uh, together. And in the coffee room, there were newspapers from all around the world. And certainly men would go to this tavern and discuss everything, including politics. In 1774, an exhausted Paul Revere went to Philadelphia to tell them the news that Boston Harbor had been closed by the British. His first stop was the city tavern. As delegates to the Continental Congress met in the state courthouse in Philadelphia... For a series of meetings that over time would lead to the signing of the Declaration of Independence, informal meetings were taking place in the city tavern. Thomas Jefferson uh, noted that he and John Adams could be found often in the city tavern for feasts of reason and flow of soul. It's pretty obvious that soul wasn't the only thing flowing at those tables. It was also a favorite haunt of Benjamin Franklin, who could often be seen in the dining room. The City Tavern also played a role some 11 years later when the city was hosting what would later be known as the Constitutional Convention. And when the debates were going on, yes indeed, as delegates met in the state courthouse, they were also having informal meetings at the City Tavern and talking quite often at the signing of the document. All of the delegates still there in Philadelphia, some had walked out, of course, celebrated with a dinner at the tavern, and beer was certainly part of that. As George Washington would ride up to New York to take the office and become the first president under that constitution, he would first stop at the city tavern for a dinner and no doubt some beers. The city tavern is still there in Philadelphia it had been destroyed by a fire in the 1850s, but... It's been restored, so you can go there and and have an experience of being in the same place that Washington and Franklin and Jefferson and Adams uh, went to. The Green Dragon Inn is Boston's Colonial Tavern on Union Ave in the North End. It was the site where Sam Adams and others met as the group known as the Sons of Liberty and planned activities in Boston and planned communications in terms of reaching out with other colonies. Paul Revere would start his rides here at the Green Dragon. And later in 1788, a group of merchants would meet at the Green Dragon to support the Constitution. There is still a Green Dragon Inn in Boston, but it's not the original. And the third tavern is the Raleigh Inn in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. Built in 1717 and named after Sir William Raleigh, who was the first uh, person to attempt a settlement in Virginia, it was a haven for William and Mary college students in the day, including a young Thomas Jefferson. Its claim to fame came in 1769, when the governor of Virginia dissolved the House of Burgesses, which was the legislature in Virginia at the time. After the Virginia legislature supported massachusetts on its bid to resist the british prominent men reconvened at the raleigh inn they planned no revolution at that year this was only 1769 but they did go for a boycott of british goods in 1774 when a different governor dissolved the house of burgesses once again prominent members now among them george washington Richard Henry Lee, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, reconvened here and ran the colonial government from the tavern while the royal governor retreated to a ship. Here at the Raleigh Tavern, they would set the framework for the meetings that would lead to the meetings in Philadelphia and the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Independence, in a sense, began in that tavern. The bar is still there in, in Williamsburg, and you can go there and have a brew. So indeed, beer and American politics go together. It should be absolutely no surprise. A national amendment for prohibition just is not something that would make any sense until around the time of the turn of the century. Now, I think they drank responsibly, as it were, in that time. I think that they, a good person didn't let it get out of hand. I think that they had just as much disregard for somebody who was drunk all the time as we would today. So there's, there's all of those things. But it was certainly the lubricant to the social fabric in colonial times. Okay, from the MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPolitics.com website. Greg, who also identifies himself as Watcher, says, A couple of thoughts. I'd be interested to hear your take on VPs who've become president due to the untimely demise of the sitting president. It seems to me that on at least a couple of occasions, these men have proved to be more than worthy successors to the men who were on top of the original ticket. TR and LBJ spring to mind. But what about Chester Arthur and Andrew Jackson? Has it always been a case of cometh the hour Cometh the man? Thanks for your question. It's fair to say that it's not Cometh the hour, Cometh the man, although there are some examples of that. Certainly, Theodore Roosevelt was catapulted into American history in a way that it would be hard to see happen otherwise. Not to say that Teddy Roosevelt wouldn't have been a successful governor of New York. That's what he was before he accepted the vice presidential nomination in 1900. Perhaps a contender for the presidency in 1904. But given the conservative nature of the Republican Party at that time, it's unlikely. Now, one might say that otherwise there would have been a William Jennings Bryan presidency, perhaps, by 1904, and radical change in America. That's hard to say, but it is true that T.R. co opted the Democratic issues and ensured that he would be reelected in 1904, and that Republicans would hold the presidency in 1908. The Democrats simply had nowhere to run on. There was a fairly progressive guy in the White House taking some of their issues, or at least pivoting in that direction. They won four elections in a row. So having a kind person, if not a partisan of theirs in the White House, gave hope to progressive forces. Unlike McKinley, there was no reluctance on the part of TR, of an old Civil War veteran, about a new world with America as its leader. So Teddy Roosevelt is an example of come at the man, come at the hour. He really defined his time. And a tragedy changed American history, perhaps in a positive way. But your counterexample, in my opinion, is Andrew Johnson. Uh, taking over after Lincoln, he did some things that were earnest and some things that were foolish. He did try, at least initially, to put through a more moderate reconstruction plan after the Civil War when the big question was what were we going to do with these southern states? Were they conquered provinces? Were they territories? Were they states that just needed to come back to the Union? Lincoln had urged, with malice towards none, a more moderate plan. But implementing that plan angered radicals or extreme Republicans who wanted more and also wanted the votes of newly enfranchised black voters to win national office and win the electoral votes of the southern states. Johnson was right to advocate a more moderate plan, but by vetoing the Freedmen's Bureau bill, this bill set up a bureau that would send federal offices into the south to help support and defend the new black workers. They had been slaves. These are the same people that are now becoming workers and need to now negotiate with the same plantation owners that they had been slaves under. It was thought that there had to be an arbitrator in that process, and that's one of the many things that the Freedmen's uh, Bureau did. He vetoed that bill, and he earned the disgust of many uh, radical Republicans, of course, but even some moderate Republicans who might have supported him otherwise. They didn't see the reason for the veto. Then there came the general pardon that uh, Andrew Johnson issued of all Confederates, save a few men of property, who, in his mind, were responsible for causing the war. But even many of those uh, rich former Confederates he gave personal pardons to. The pardons erased any leverage that the federal government had in obtaining concessions from the defeated South. Then came the campaigning in the midterms of 1866 in which Johnson looked crude. He made attacks, he answered hecklers, he just looked unpresidential. General Ulysses Grant, who had supported Johnson and served under him, now started to back off. Johnson was not a man for the hour. You can make a case for Andrew Johnson, you can definitely look at a very complex situation trying to enforce law in the south after it had been defeated when americans or northerners at the time wanted their soldiers home back up north how are we going to keep a substantial force enough down there um, to keep the south under an occupation and you can look at it as was it the right thing to keep uh, southerners under occupation do we have to start bringing them back into the fold but it's hard not to assign some blame to Johnson for uh, his clumsy efforts in Reconstruction. In personality, the other President Johnson had some interesting similarities. He was gruff, he was irritable, he was paranoid according to some, but he was more effective than Andrew Johnson. Lyndon Johnson's leadership uh, passed Kennedy's civil rights bill and his Great Society programs that had been stalled for the most part. Now, whether or not uh, Lyndon Johnson is a greater man than Kennedy is certainly up to debate. I think that Kennedy could have probably been in better shape politically after a re-elect in 1964. But Johnson did it, and that's the example we have in history. Arthur, it is Chester Arthur, John Tyler, and Millard Fillmore make interesting examples. Because the presidents, uh, they succeeded, were... Not in long enough, perhaps, to make uh, strong impressions. Chester Arthur deserves more credit than he gets. He was instrumental in passing a civil service reform and changing the federal government from a total spoils system to one of, along the lines of merit. It didn't quite get there immediately under his administration, but got, went in that direction. Uh, he worked along with a Democratic senator, George Pendleton of Ohio, who 20 years ago was the Democratic candidate for vice president. Chester Arthur also helped to build up the American Navy, uh, which came in very handy in later years. And he opposed some laws uh, which were uh, he saw as anti-immigration. I have to say about Garfield, the man he seceded, that, and it's all speculation on my part, but Garfield might have been, um, there might have been more there than meets the eye, based on his handling early on of the political bosses before he was shot. So it's hard to say whether Arthur was better than Garfield. That's just tough. I mean, there just wasn't enough time. Millard Fillmore passed through the Compromise of 1850, which, you, on the positive side, you could look at it, he Saved us uh, from the Civil War for about 10 years. The Compromise might have worked. It did bring in California as a free state. It did ban the slave trade in Washington, D.C., uh, which started to really give a sense of that the momentum was against uh, slave owners and slavery, that uh, while it didn't affect slavery in the South, the Compromise of 1850 was showing where there was going to be an end uh, to to slave trading. But it also instituted the Fugitive Slave Act, which meant that now Millie Fillmore had to enforce the law and slaves had to be returned to owners when they ran away. This made him extremely unpopular. Fillmore was not a great president. It was hard to tell if he was better or not than Taylor, because Zachary Taylor had not served that long. And his reputation was damaged very much by his run in 1856 on the Know-Nothing or American Party, which was an anti immigrant anti-Catholic party. John Tyler's big accomplishment was probably succeeding to the presidency itself. He set the pattern for a vice president to succeed to the presidency after William Henry Harrison's death. Uh, He's then probably best known for his role in the annexation of Texas. But he really did that just a few months before James Polk uh, took office and probably would have ended up doing it himself. Other than that, he battled a lot with his own Whig party and didn't get too much done. Hard to call him a great president. So those are a few examples of uh, vice presidents. I don't think it's come at the man, come at the hour in every case. Although, succeeding to the presidency after being vice president, does give a person a tremendous opportunity and a reservoir of goodwill uh, from the American people. I want to thank you for listening. The website is My History Can Beat Up Your It's great to see uh, so many people on the Facebook site, the uh, fans of My History Can Beat Up Your You can post a question in either place, uh, you can post a discussion at the Facebook site. You can either run a search at the Facebook site or if you go to My History Can Beat Up Your com, there's a link for it. Also on that site is the archive of My History Can Beat Up Your uh, That's 1995. If you go in there, you can have access to hours of uh, podcasts on a variety of issues that affect today's politics but that have some basis uh, in American history as well. And we'll talk about it. Hours and hours of podcasts. It's 1995. Uh, you'll also get some extras in there. One of them is History Picked the President. This is a look at the last election and how history played a role. It also looks at some of the standard political factors, uh, demographics, and politics, how various demographics changed across the country in 2008. That's available on the website either as a its own unit for 3.99 or if you buy the archive at 19.99 you get that you get a book on representation and uh, some of the other extras that we're going to publish in the future we're working on a uh, extended podcast on the signers of the declaration of independence that will be available for the archive subscribers uh, thanks for listening website myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com